Welcome back to the Carp Chronicles podcast. This episode is most definitely for those of you who pay an interest in bait and want to make their bait more attractive to carp. I'm lucky enough to be invited up to the British Aquafeeds factory by Callum Wilson. I had a look around, looked at all of their hydrolysis equipment and the other parts of the factory. Absolutely fascinating. The stuff that they're doing up there is genuinely exciting for those of us who are interested in new bait products. After my tour, I sit down with Callum Wilson, who is the director, and I talk through different things that they are working on, new products, where Callum sees the industry going, what we can do to make our bait more attractive to carp, and a whole load more. It was absolutely fascinating. I thoroughly enjoyed my time up there, and I really hope you enjoy listening to the interview with Callum. Before we jump into that, of course, I need to announce we are sponsored by carphuntergiveaways.co.uk. I've said it before, I'll say it again. These guys are awesome. They give a proportion of their profits back to war veterans who suffer with PTSD. Um, And just the prize draws themselves are absolutely fantastic. They have got everything that you can think of there. From bed chairs, bite alarms, bivvies, even bait. So check them out. Carphuntergiveaways.co.uk And lastly, before we jump into the interview, of course, we sell our own bait these days. Nothing like on the scale of British Aquafeeds, but we sell some flavours. We've got some really interesting and unique powders coming to market as well. So if you want something out of the norm to give your fishing an edge, go ahead, check out baitbros.co.uk. It's all exclusive to us. It's very unique, and I wholeheartedly believe in every single product that we release. So check us out baitbros.co.uk. That's it for the intro. Let's jump into this interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Callum, welcome to the podcast. Do you want to start by introducing yourself, giving us a brief history of who you are and how you got into the position that you're in today? Right. Hi, everybody. My name's Callum Wilson, and I'm the director of British Aquafeeds. Uh, brief history on myself. Um... I'm just, and I repeat, just over 50. Um, started fishing at the ages of six, seven years old, um, going through the motions of learning the tricks of the trade, float fishing, ledgering. And eventually um, came through to sort of like the specimen side of things in the late, mid to late 80s, probably just as a carp fishing boom was about to take off. So then I, I've always had a keen interest on why and how things work from a bait point of view. Um, the early days we had um, the likes of Rod Hutchinson, Richworth, etc, etc. Um, then came along the Nutra baits and the Premier baits mainline. Um, and I've, over the last 20 years I've studied to quite an in-depth. Um, self-taught. Uh, read a hell of a lot of wheat and chaff that's scientific journals and um, I've been involved in the bait game for probably about the past 15 20 years um, from an industry scale um, started off working at sticky baits as general manager um, Sam Anderson brought me in in 2011 um, unfortunately at the time things didn't go to plan um, he sold out to his brother Tom um, Tom decided he could do my job so I was asked to clear me things and leave and ended up um, Steve Carey approached me to 
um, run a company called British Aquafeeds. I was said at the time with a bad experience that it's sticky, I would never get back into it, but um, I think it's more of a love for all things bait related that we think, oh, one more try can't harm anything, can it? So we got back into it and uh, Steve explained his vision of why he set up the company called British Aquafeeds. Um, probably a lot of people know that we're very closely um, related to DNA baits. So the main emphasis was um, to bulk buy the ingredients for DNA and on an offshoot is obviously if we're buying 30, 40 tonnes of this material and DNA only take 20 tonnes, have we got an outlet to sell it? So this is why I was brought in because of the knowledge I've gained and obviously the customers I've built up previously and working with the likes of example, say Nutribates or whoever. Um, I had some good contacts in the industry where I thought, yeah, I can maybe get rid of some of these ingredients, these oils, these liquids that we're trading. Um, started trading in 2016 in Pollington in a thousand square foot unit and today we have 27,000 square foot. <laughs> probably more than I can handle um, and obviously things have gone from strength to strength with the investment that Steve's done into the business to drive it forward. It's an impressive setup here, I've, I've lucky enough to have a walk around with you um, and we'll definitely get into the whole production side in a little bit. Just to clarify then, were you with British Aquafeeds from the ground up or was it already established when you came in? Steve had set up the company through Company's House, but right. he wasn't actually trading. So he brought me in, obviously, to oversee DNA's requirements on the ingredients and liquid side. And then um, what surplus stocks we had, we was to trade to the various um, manufacturers of baits out there, see what customers we could pick up. So it wasn't actually trading when I set up. So we didn't start trading till. February 2016. Mm -hmm. So in effect, we've been trading just over five years. Yeah, and I think in that time, it's fair to say you've become the premier bait ingredient supplier for the home roller. What do you think has been the key for you making such a rapid headway within the market? I think being a home roller before myself in the late 80s, mid-90s, um, and knowing what they want, in retrospect to quality ingredients, supply of quality oils, and especially the, the booming hydrolysates. Mm -hmm. um, people, the fishing, the home bait roller, the, the bait manufacturers, they have a quite rightly a love for hydrolysates. They really do, and they are, to me, probably key number one attraction in attracting a fish mm -hmm. um, because of the, the actual makeup of the hydrolysate, which I'm sure we'll come up to uh, a bit later on. Definitely. Well, I think we'll, we'll slip into it now. I mean, I, I know Baff's been making leaps and bounds in the realms of hydrolysates. I know you've got some new things you're working on. I'm sure you want to talk about some of them. Can you, before we jump into that kind of thing, can you just explain to those that don't know what is a hydrolysate? Why should we be be paying attention to it. A hydrolysate takes um, basically a long chain protein and breaks it down into what we call smaller chain peptides, um, ditripeptides, and if you want to extend that further into free form amino acids. 
through the use of what we call endo and exopeptidases. Now endopeptidases cleave <coughs> the long chain proteins down into smaller peptides. Exopeptidases cleave the actual individual amino acids from the shorter protein chains. So obviously anybody who has a, a rough idea on how a fish is attracted to a bait will know that amino acids um, it's how does how does a fish um, realize that there's a bait there it's by it's through its sense of smell um, they have two sense of smell and a sense of taste now obviously how does it know that its food source is there so this is by the amino acids given off from a particular bait or it might be what if it's um, a living creature it might be what it secretes see everybody when they eat something in general terms they have to have a poo out so on that poo is full of stuff that your body doesn't want yet it's broken down into a molecular level um, so that that poo in itself contains various amino acids uh, various amino ammonia nitrates and stuff so this is what the you know the fish are attracted through through a chemo attraction you mentioned peptides as well as amino acids obviously we all get wrapped up in the amino acids and the attraction of those as far as peptides go have you looked into whether in the first instance peptides are attractive to carp whether it fits their chemoreception key or is it something that you try and minimize from the bait is it something you try and maximize within the bait um peptide depends on the chain length of the actual peptide itself um you would probably have to shorten that peptide chain into what we call peptides. but you come across a catch-22 situation here because the through the use of enzymes and the hydrolysis techniques um when you shorten anything you get a, a significant bittering action mm -hmm. So we overcome that through the use of an exopeptidase which cleaves off individual amino acids which reduces the amount of debittering and we use enzymes such as flavorzymes which enhance the flavor or the aromatics of that particular hydrolysis or hydrolysate you're making. Fl flavorzyme that sounds made up to me <laughs> is that is that a real no, that, thing that's that's just basically the name the enzyme supplier will give right. a particular product right um what they will do there will be a mixture of endo exopeptidases particularly around the glutaminases that free off glutamic acid yeah. um to give it that unami smell yeah if you're making a, a meat hydrolysate for example um, they will concentrate those that will pronounce the actual aromatics from particular amino acids. So that's where they concentrate their expertise on. Yeah. So, you name me, interesting, isn't it? We were talking about John Baker before we hit record, and I know that's something that he's he's been very much into for many years. So the, just to go back to these uh, flavor enzymes, 
it's it's not an enzyme bolted onto a flavor as we would know it. it presumably, it, it is. Ch- it, it is actually a, pro- is. a protease enzyme. You know, okay. so most enzymes are proteins themselves. Yeah, they work to simplify things. They work in a lock and key. Yeah, your key fits a lock. It unlocks it, and then you're able to open the door. So the the flavor aspect comes from the fact it changes the flavor of the product. That's why it's called a flavor Basically, enzyme. yeah, it'll liberate certain amino acids and certain short-chain peptides to create a more aromatic compound mm-hmm. from that hydrolysate, mm-hmm. and that'll increase a sense of smell, um, in particular to us humans. And then, obviously, from that, we know glutamic acid, um, acid is quite stimulatory, from a, a fishy sense of taste mm-hmm. rather than a, a fishy sense of smell. Yeah. So we, but obviously, knowing where the receptors are within a fish is how you've got extra oral, which is outside the mouth, mm-hmm. and then you've got intra oral, which is inside the mouth. So you've got to play it, you've got to look at various aspects when you're making a hydrolysis, right? What you're trying to achieve, who is it for? As I've explained, a lot of our hydrolysis will be going into the pet food market. So people don't understand, they think it's all about the fishing bait, whereas obviously there's two companies involved here. There's British Aquafeeds and there's British Animal Feeds. So we're making these hydrolysis for the pet feed market. But the joy about it now is I can tailor specific amino acid sequencing to target a carp. Mm-hmm to maybe target the barbel, whatever, whatever route I decide to go now, and we've got lots of things in the pipeline for this, um, not just based around, obviously, me. We have to be look at it a little bit savvy and think, right, what's sustainable? Everybody wants krill. Yeah. They just, people love krill, hydrolysate. It's a, it's a, when it was on the market, it was a damn good hydrolysate, but we've got to be a bit more adventurous, so... We're obviously looking at the insect hydrolysate. Um, we've done some small-scale trials. Um, obviously, our sister company, DNA, uses um, the insect protein meal within the launch of the new bait, the bug, which has done tremendously well. But we're working with various bodies, Ferrosciences, which are part owned by DEFRA, a part investment, private investment owned, we're working with these on a weekly basis <coughs> of how best to achieve these the making of these hydrolysates um, moving forward as a more sustainable source. Yeah, and you, because people are going to want to know, they're going to go mad for this. You mentioned krill briefly and you spoke to me about it earlier. That's something that you're going to start producing again, right? Krill hydrolysate? Yeah, we've everything we produce, we have to be validated from Animal Plant Health Agency. So we have to give them what we call a HACCP plan, which is a hazard analytical critical control point plan. Um, Because it's all right, you're having a pressure cooker, um, you shove some raw Cat3 ABPs in there, add some enzymes in, put it to the correct temperature, the correct pH, let the enzyme do its job, and that's everything. Everybody thinks that's it, it's all great, but it doesn't quite work like that. Um, because we're governed by the registered body, <coughs> we have to go by their regulations. So you've got 
they are, we have to forward a HACCP plan. It's all about biosecurity. Since Mad Cow's disease or the BSC crisis 20-odd years ago, we've uh, obviously Animal Plant Health Agency was born to protect um, A, humans, and B, animal feeds. So we have to abide by their rules, and part of their rules are, as you've seen walking through the hydrolysis room, there's biosecurity involved in there. Yeah, rigorous. Yeah, so we, we, because we're using Category 3 raw materials, we have to make sure it's biosecure. And that, if that means, you know, dressing up in your mad white professor's outfits, your hair nets, etc., washing your hands, cleaning down of equipment, getting microbiological results for Salmonella, Enterobacteriaceae, Clostridium perfringens, we have to abide by that on every batch that we produce. So the validation of the actual product takes, we have to validate or every particular produce we make, we have to make sure that it's microbial free for every single time we produce it for 30 different batches. And as I've explained, just the testing alone on one particular product has cost in excess of £2,000 to be tested from a microbiological level. That's before we get into any analytical detail of what percent protein it is, what percent moisture it is, what percent lipid, what percent ash it is, etc. And all of that analysis is done out of house, isn't it? So that yes, we have pay. to. Animal Plant Health Agency say we have to use what we call a UCAS accredited lab. So they have to be accredited to a, a UK standard. A bit like, say, an ISO 9000, you know, these laboratory companies. And for a particular microbiological report, such as Clostridium perfringens, which is an, actually an airborne. Um, bacteria um, there's very few up and down the country so finding one of them was just a, a task in itself to get um, this So, and then there's obviously a cost they're not going to do it for anything nor is anybody else so for every batch you're doing over this 30 day validation this is when you know, people don't see the, probably the, the costs involved Yeah. then you have to produce a material so if you've got um, an enzyme vat or a vessel that'll hold, as an example, 2,000 litres, we then have to produce for 30 days a minimum 60% of its capacity. So then we're producing 1,000 litres or more of li liquid liver or liquid krill. So we've got to produce that on 30 separate days, get 30 separate results. So then we're stuck with holding about seventy, eighty thousand pounds worth of raw material alone. Then there's the cost of your enzymes, your manpower, your overhead. So people don't realise. They might think, oh, you know, there's cap tax on this product, there's yeah. cap tax on that product. But the reality of it is, a half a million pound investment into a hydrolysis plant, which is basically a small scale plant in comparison with other. Um, hydrolysate producers around the world but it all has to be recouped somehow I, th I mean I was taking photos of, of the factory when you were saying it but I think you said even the water that gets washed through the machines to clean them you have to pay for that to be taken away and disposed of correctly yeah right? yeah the the what we call cat 3 waste yeah. water 
Um, we obviously had chemicals um, like caustic soda. We had certain antibacterial cleaning agents that go through all the pipework, etc. That can't be just dumped anywhere. Mm. So what we do, um, from an environmental side of things, we then pump all the waste water into an, uh, an IBC. That's labelled up, as you saw, Cat 3 waste water. And then we have to send it off to a waste processor who will handle Cat 3 waste water. And I'm guessing that's not cheap. Well, it's, it's, everything's a cost, isn't it, at, um, <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day? Enzymes are far from cheap. Yeah. Um, obviously, enzymes, um, you know, probably used at between 0.5 and 1.5% weight for weight of the substrate it's acting on. Mm. So for every, say, 100 kilo of produce you've got there, you might have to use upwards of a kilo or a litre of enzymes to act upon the substrate. So... And you can imagine, they're not cheap. Uh, and some of the enzyme suppliers, they'll say, right, our minimum order's 100 litres. So then you've got to think to yourself, well, there's all this cost, and then you've got to look at supply, supply chain. McDonald's can't get a milkshake, Nando's can't get any chicken. So, and then you think, have I got enough? Yeah. Have I got 15 tonne of chicken livering to cover this validation? Mm. It's very, very difficult at times. You mentioned chicken liver there. I've got to ask, any plans to do any other liver hydrolysates? Um, beef is what I'm thinking. I get asked this probably I on imagine a, daily, you do. a daily basis. Yes. Now, our chief vet, Animal Plant Health Agency, has categorically ruled any beef hydrolysate to be used as a no-no in aquaculture feeds. I'm not saying, you know, don't use it, but she has, obviously because of the BSE crisis, yeah. um, she will not allow us to produce a beef hydrolysate. So is that just hydrolyzed beef or is that any beef product? It should be any beef product. Any beef product. If you look at all the um, feeds, that Coppins, Scrattings, Ala Aqua, they all produce you won't see a single beef product in there so so what does that mean for a, a smaller rolling outfit yeah someone that's that, that may be selling i don't know 500k a, a month that kind of setup it still applies to those or it's, it applies to everybody. everyone yeah it applies to everybody everybody so, that's registered through through defra through um animal plant health agency you're not allowed to use beef products okay um but Obviously, at the end of the day, it's not up to me to say what no. Joe Bloggs next door can use. Um, if he wants to use beef products, that's his call. Mm. Um, I'm not here to police it. No, no, it's no. It's the job no. of the authorities. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, I understand that. Um, obviously, I, I walked through your hydrolysis plant, and it is, it's space-age stuff. <laughs> I'm guessing, well, I know, actually, because you showed me, but the temperatures and the pH, or not, not, as, not as much on the pH as I thought, but they both have to be regulated quite closely, right? Yes. Any enzyme you use <coughs> will have an optimum temperature. As an example, um, a particular endo protease that we use its optimum temperature will be between as an example 50 55 degrees mm. that's its optimum temperature 
where it is producing the hydrolysis at its best. So we have the commercial boilers set up um, whereby they're automatically generated to put the heat through the vessels at that 52, 53 degrees and we can control it to within 0 0.5, 0 0.1 of a degree mm -hmm. of them parameters. See, when you're paying a couple of hundred pound a kilo for a particular enzyme, yeah, and you can't achieve that 50, 55 degrees, I think you've got to say to yourself, all right, I might get 50% effective hydrolysis at 40, 45 degrees, but is it worth it? Mm. So we have to have the equipment set up in place. And as you saw, we've got the thermocouples in each of the vessels that record the temperature purely for animal plant health ages. But for, for obviously the guys operating the SCADA screens, um, that records temperature every minute inside the vessel. So you've, you've got a, a chicken liver going right now, haven't you? Yeah. Which is at 77 degrees. Is that as, as hot as it gets? Do you have no, any you that can go, go up With the vacuum evaporator, um, because it's steam, it's a steam plant or steam driven plant, right. um, um, the vacuum evaporator, the steam is around about 139 degrees C. Wow. Now, obviously, from a, when we produce a hydrolysate, we have to give it what we call a, a microbial kill, whereby one we're obviously reducing the risk of any microbial contamination from salmonella from enterobacteriaceae and two we have to inactivate the enzymes because otherwise the enzymes will carry on working as long as they got a substrate to work on mm -hmm. <coughs> so there's two ways of going about that obviously heat um, by heating it up for a certain temperature normally most most of your enzymes are inactive around about 80, 85 degrees for probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Some slightly higher, some slightly lower. And you can also inactivate the enzymes by pH side of things. As we said before, enzymes can be optimal between pH 6 and 8. So if you reduce the pH of a particular liquid down to three three and a half you virtually instantly cut out any chance of any enzyme activity we preserve it with organic acids um, such as um, uh, formic acid formic acid is commonly used in the animal feed industry um, to preserve a product stop it spoiling so we're no different um, we use formic acids quite cheap um, we use a mixture of three different organic acids um, obviously, it can be commercially sensitive, but it does say it on our on our new labels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we use them, and we know from various studies that certain organic acids are quite attractive mm -hmm. to fish. So if you've got the organic acids, you've got the amino acids, um, and the health benefits that go with the hydrolysis, to me, it's, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Absolute no-brainer. That's why they are quite rightly so popular. Yeah, most definitely. So you get a lot of um, enthusiasts making their own so-called hydrolysates at home. What are your thoughts on that? I think the thoughts are good because it's more of a fermentation. Yes. Which takes a lot longer. Mm -hmm. 
Um, again, probably not quite as high temperatures needed for fermentation, but definitely um, I've messed around with some pretty potent bacterial strains. Obviously, avoid the gram negative. If you're going to go out there and do it on your own, mm. you can be seriously, seriously ill mm -hmm. by using some of these bacteria strains. So stick to the gram positive ones that you know won't cause you any side effects. Um, one thing I didn't touch upon is when you're using enzymes, especially in a powdered form, just how dangerous it can be to the human respiratory tract. Yeah. So we we have. I'll let you take a picture of the actual MSDS okay. um, from the enzyme suppliers, and you'll just see. You'll be thinking, "Wow, why am I even thinking about touching yeah. this stuff?" Yeah. You know. So you've got to you've got to be aware that you've got people here working for you. You've got to put their safety first. Obviously, you've seen the chemical cupboards that inside of the big yellow lockers that they all have to be locked away in and handled properly. So you just got to be careful. I mean, the home bait makers, they're, they're making it on a small scale. Mm -hmm. You know, they might be making five litres of a liver. They might be making five litres of a fish, you know. And I think that's where a lot of your inventive stuff comes from in carp fishing. You know, when you look about it, I'll tr if we didn't try anything, we'd be getting nowhere. So this is where I sort of like see fair play to you, mate. If mm -hmm. you can make that work for you, good o good on you because if we don't try and do something if we don't try and ferment it and break it down to a micromolecule level who else is going to do it have you got any tips for them so they can they can be more successful with their own homemade hydros yeah i think um the lactic acid bacteria is a good one okay to go down um always if you can mince the produce up so the actual um, bacteria have got more of an open surface yep. um, uh, to work on the substrate. Um, make sure everything's meticulously clean. Because what you'll find is through fermentation, you're breeding bacteria. Mm. Yeah, you're feeding the bacteria, and the bacteria secrete. It's what, a lot of it is what the bacteria secrete. The enzymes they secrete then actually breaks the produce down. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you an example, classic one, uh, Bacillus substilling. Absolutely phenomenal. B before you all go out there and rush um, to buy um, Bacillus substilling, um, just be careful what you're actually acting upon. I've used it as an example um, for breaking down chitin. Um, because it secretes a chitinase, which is the exoskeleton of, say, shrimp, mm. etc., which is very hard. It's, it's made of hard polysaccharide material, um, so it's very hard to break down from an enzyme level. Um, but bacteria secrete the chitinase, the chitinase breaks down the chitin. Hence, it's made the product more pure and just using certain enzymes alone. It takes a lot longer, you know, upwards of 30 days in a controlled environment. However, the results are more than worth it. But if you're not, if you're uncomfortable, don't risk it. The only thing I would say is if you talk to somebody or talk to a friend or talk to people on the internet who are more familiar, if they're willing to help you, mm. um, great. 
I think it's the consistency as well, isn't it? For for people doing it at home, I imagine you can't get it hundred percent consistent, like from batch to batch, like you guys do. But I'd imagine that's the main concern for them, isn't it? I the temperature of the, the they're operating in a store. You can if you've got a controlled environment. If you have a controlled environment where I would always tell people to lock down <coughs> the exact amounts you're using, you know, uh, the amount of bacteria, the amount of water. They're obviously mixing water with the actual substrate, whether it be liver, beef, prawn, whatever they're trying to ferment. Write everything down because there will come a time when you think, I'll get good at this. <laughs> um, and you're getting popular, maybe selling a few bottles here, there. Um, but um, yeah, just make sure you write everything down. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So j just sticking with hydros before we move on. Um, in your opinion, what is the best hydrolysate that's been produced, either by yourselves or by someone else? We've come across a hydrolysate in the last two years. Um, it's not made by ourselves. Um, it's one that obviously goes in DNA baits the bug. And given the amino acid profile, I've never seen anything that comes quite as close as this to the absolute ultimate hydrolysate. On paper or in practice? Both. Or both? Um, we've seen fish literally climb banks in videos that people have poured this neat hydrolysate into water. Um, and just seeing the fish's reaction has just been absolutely phenomenal. When I actually saw the spec sheet um, through an email that the company supplying it um, sent to me, my eyes literally lit up. I was like, oh my God, I couldn't wait to run and tell Jason, look at this, look at this, look at this. It's absolutely amazing on paper, but like anything, has to go through its yeah. trials and its testing. And it is a, it's the best hydrolysate I've seen used, but its usability is a nightmare. In what, what do you mean by that? Because of the physical state, how it, how it, how it changes on the physical side of things. Can you expand on that? Not really, because it'd be a bit commercially sensitive. <laughs> yeah. But it's yeah. in its physical state, when it's just been made, fantastic. Right. I leave it to stand a little bit in its physical state. Uh, so it's very, very hard to work with. So is this something that you're trying to get stable so it can be shipped out? We've mixed it with certain other liquids. Um, and... Sometimes it's worked and sometimes it hasn't. Um, we've found probably the best percentage to use it at in a, in a liquid form, is mixing it with other liquids, is around about the 20-30% mark. What kind of thing would you put that with? Um, you could possibly thin it out with water, boiled water itself. Um, probably use a, a thinner liquid itself. Okay. And and this is a insect. No, this is not. not an, this is not an insect. Okay. Hydrolysate. Um, okay. I've quite rightly gave Jace. Um, he wants exclusivity and yeah. DNA baits with this hydrolysate um, for the next couple of years. So I've had to say right. Apart from my own personal fishing, which I don't get to do these days, um, you know that little uh, ingredients is its baby, if you like. So so it's sorry to harp on on this. 
it has to be made and then put into a product quickly is that is it yeah is, basically right yeah okay because of the physical state or the change right the physical state that happens um it's just an absolute nightmare to deal with yeah it all sounds intriguing to the plumber and I'm, i bet they're thinking right uh, can i have some of this can i have some <laughs> of that well, no you can't not for the next couple of years but um it's a phenomenal i've never seen anything like it is it is it in one of um, DNA's products that they sell at the moment or not it yet? It is in the um, in the bug in the that bug. they've just um, okay. released. It's um, it's quite in a like, probably the closest I've seen to it fish reaction wise. Um, it's not very often I'm impressed with liquids and various because I've probably ninety five different ingredients and liquids you come across. You know. Yeah. They're all, they all get chucked in the bin, but there's odd now and again, there's one or two that's sort of like a bit of an eye-opener. Uh, beta Stim was a massive eye-opener for me. Um, the liquid betaine supplement that we sell. Mm. I, I was fortunate at the time to have my own lake with crystal clear depths. Um, uh, it was a lake called Silver Lake. You can see the videos on YouTube and a lot of the filming done underwater was in 13 foot of water. You would think it was like tap water. Mm. But I witnessed this, the fish's reaction to the beta stim and I'm like, oh my God, wow, is that really happening? And was it was it weather conditions? <laughs> you know. And then when you see it over and over again, and then the same with this hydrolysis, probably the only other liquid that's come close is probably the old, old L030. Yeah. Which people still say it hasn't been better these days, but this particular hydrolysis is as good. And you think two years it'll be out on the market? Yeah, if yeah. we can make it into a usable form. Yeah. That is a task. If I could have made that into a usable form and obviously Jay said, yeah, no problem, you go sell it to the... Mm. to the bait manufacturers to public but he wanted a bit of exclusivity on it yeah yeah um, which quite rightly so um we work very closely with them and they they are our biggest customers yeah so we offered them exclusivity on it and we have to just sit tight and work in a way of making this more user friendly to the to the joe public and to the bait manufacturers mm. but it's good it's very good. Feel free to slip me a bottle on the way out. <laughs> okay. Um, so, do you, I mean, I know you said a lot of these um, hydros, they're going up to very high temperatures. Are there any hydrolysates that don't reach high temperatures and you have fears around them then being put into a boilie that's then obviously boiled? Yeah, I think we have to give it a microbiological kill. So, obviously, there's going to be a time where, obviously, people don't know what they're doing. Um, and they might already have salmonella in that product and mm. obviously because they're not giving it that microbial kill um, that obviously they, they're um, fermenting it at a perfect temperature for salmonella to breed yeah. so they might, they might come across a case whereby you know there is a, a particular outbreak somewhere because of lack of hygiene, lack of standards. Um, but, like I said before, if these guys wasn't doing it and learning about <coughs> what makes fish tick and learning about how 
we get new ingredients, new hydros and stuff like that coming along to the fore. A lot of these guys, you know, they're the sort of like inventors. Yeah, no. Of various products. So I've, I've, you know, I'm not here to tell them they can't do that. I'm here to say, you carry on doing what you're doing because I see you guys as the actual guys who make things happen. Um, it's a good point. Yeah, sorry, what I meant was, are there any hydros that shouldn't be heated up? So so you produce several different hydrolysates. Is there any that don't reach that high temperature within your own production? And then people are going, they're, they're going home, putting in a boiling mix and boiling it. Does that denature it at all? Yeah, yeah, I think with obviously boiling at 100 degrees C, so you're always going to get some a slight denaturing effect there. Um, I would say given that we're, what do most people boil the baits for? between two and four minutes mm -hmm. does the actual core of the bait hit 100 degrees ideally not i think the reason why we boil the baits is a to form a skin on it stop nuisance fish and b we might be sticking it out 90 100 110 yards you know in the in the throwing sticks and it has to have a firm skin that's a downside to it so you will get some denaturing there yeah but i wouldn't i think what you can do is obviously overcompensate a little bit so say if you you knew um 30 mil in an ideal world was kept within that boilie or bait 30 mil of that hydro was kept in there if you know you're going to lose i don't know let's say 10 percent you'd end up putting 35 mil of hydro mm -hmm. in the bait to counteract for that maybe 10% loss you've got. You'll always get some form of loss. Exactly the same when you're using your powdered pre-digesting material, like your CPSP90, your hydrolyzed liver powder. Because of the soluble nature of these ingredients, you will get some loss there. Definitely. I mean, the whole heating up thing, I mean, it, it does aid the digestion of certain things anyway, doesn't it? Um, I know not particularly around hydrolysates, but it's not all bad that we heat it's up. It's not all boilers. bad. Obviously, you, you're there to, obviously, the nuisance fish, um, stop them attacking or eating the bait. Um, egg over mucoid, which is a well-known trypsin inhibitor. Yeah. It's inhibited above 71 degrees C, so there is some benefit there. People who use um, fresh eggs, um, most of your egg albumins and your whole egg powder are spray dried above that temperature, yeah. so you're inhibiting that side of things. Yeah, absolutely. So l last bit on the hydros, unless we naturally move back onto it, just everyone's going to want to know, um, what hydros do you foresee coming out within the next, let's say, 12 months from British Aquafeeds? Good question. Obviously, supply can be an issue. The krill one, I think, um, yes, but not probably in the amounts we hope for. Right. Um, obviously, we've got to look at the sustainability issue on that. And it's, a, it's a fine line to whether you go for demand on a product because hey, you know the business is going to be good or whether you say to yourself, right, if we truly want to move forward, what else is there in the pipeline? <laughs> so, we know, obviously, I think, as a lot of people do, there's going to be the insect hydrolysate. Um, I think, within the angling terms, quite a few people I've talked to, 
they're not that particularly fond of the insect protein, rightly or wrongly. It's maybe they've looked at it before and thought, this is just the actual shell and stuff from mm. the insect, but it's the, the methods of producing it. Um, the actual um, insect larvae meal have changed dramatically over the last five years. We now, don't know if there's a sample on the desk for you, Sam, but um, the actual um, insect um, larvae protein, no, no, that's the actual fat lipids, um, is a much more consistent meal. It's a lot higher in protein than when it first came out, and it's, it's also been defatted. Um, insect fat itself or the uh, the lipids from the insect protein itself is quite high in saturates okay so if you look at it as similar to like coconut oil it can be quite solid at room temperature mm -hmm. so the last thing you need is a product um, locking up yeah the signals coming from within your bait so that's why we've chose purely for the fishing and the aqua side to go down the defied side now obviously from an animal or insect um bird food side they want all the fats yeah so it's catch 22 so we'll be looking at bringing both types of materials in for both companies so krill is a is a hydro that will be coming out insect insect um squid i'm undecided about it's just a sheer price of the actual squid itself if somebody can get me a squid for less than three pound a kilo, or for less than five pound a kilo, I'll buy a ton, no problem. Are you selective with the type of squid that you get? Yes. Do you want like the younger, sweetest yeah. type squid, or? Yeah, we use um, a particular brand of squid. It's it's common squid. It's the uh, Argentinian Elex squid. It works for us. It works on the enzymes that we use for us. You know, I know that particular squid quite well and the enzymes that we use to break it down work very well with it and to be fair if i'd have known supplying cost would be an issue i'd have never brought it out because people love that hydro squid mm. they uh, get emails every day when's a hydro squid coming back you know do you rate it yes i do yeah even oh. though the profile or the the actual speck of it is probably not as good as say krill um is not as good as the um other hydros out there um for whatever reason it is um the squid seriously turns a fish on i think there's more to it than just amino acids isn't there there people is yes so um, when, you, when you look at i don't like people to get too hung up on protein and amino acids i would always say to people if that was the case look at the humble tiger nut just look at how yeah. or insoluble that tuber is. Um, what is it? And it's got a track record second to none. <clears throat> um, so don't get too hung up on protein and amino acids. Yeah, don't get me wrong. They are a vital chemoattractant. Um, and quite rightly so, when you formulate a bait, be mindful of digestible protein within your bait formulation. But always keep an open mind to other things to consider yeah lastly just to save us getting <laughs> about 50 questions a day when do you think you'll get the uh the, the squid and the krill hydrolysate out to market 
Well, the krill is the next one to be validated through Animal Plant Health Agency, so we have to produce that for 30 seconds, consecutive, not consecutive days, but we have to produce that for 30 days, send all the results off to the Animal Plant Health Agency, as long as everything comes back from a microbiological level, um, then we're good to go with the krill. Now, obviously, I've got to look at it from a supply chain, supply chain issue, um, have I got enough to cover in demand? People, I know exactly, I've probably got forward orders in excess of £100,000 worth of krill. So I know the demand is there, especially Europe, the UK, even some pet companies want krill hydrolysate. But you've got to think, right, is it the way forward though? Can you talk about the, the availability of krill? We spoke about this earlier, personally. Obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of crap spoken, isn't there, about krill and and whether it's sustainable, if there's much of it left, etc. Can you talk us through the standpoint on the the, the state of krill, its supply and demand? I think um, where we get the krill from, it's obviously these are what they call IFFSO registered vessels, whereby they have to adhere to a, a sustainability. Um, charter whereby if there's 500 million tonnes of krill within the world's oceans they're allowed to harvest I'm not saying this is a true figure Yeah. this is just as an example um, they have to have a sustainability policy whereby they'll harvest 2% of that um, 500 million tonnes to a, save the whales um, so they can only harvest x amount i think personally what's happened over the last couple of years is they've been paid to sit at home um the governments have turned around and said hey this krill's getting bad publicity here um is is five million quid sit at home and do nothing for the next two years well which if somebody offered me that yeah i'd do that <laughs> yeah definitely so ethically speaking then there's there's no reason to be worried about the supply of krill I don't think so. I mean, we're a small-scale producer. Yeah. You've got to look at it. If, if a massive multi-billion-pound company come along and says, right, we're going to start producing krill hydrolysates, yeah. But in the same breath, we've got to be responsible because even though we are a big company, you know, we're dropping the ocean to these multi-billion-pound companies. We've got to say to ourselves, right, um, is it the right thing to do? Hmm. You know, Steve has a has an environmental policy and he has a recycling policy here whereby 100% of our plastics um, are compacted and sent back to him for recycling. It's the same with the cardboard, any excess cardboard. It's all bailed and sent back to him for recycling. So obviously the gaffer's well in, or the group director Steve's well into his recycling. That's his main forte of business. So if we don't follow his visions and his aims, mm. he might turn around and say to me, that's not in line with company policy. Why have you done this? Why have you done that? And I can fully understand if he's in the recycling game and he's wanting to promote a healthier environment for everybody, we sometimes have to make decisions not based on business because I know if I produce a krill hydrolysate, on a on a reasonable tonnage level, 
I know that I'll bring in an extra million pounds worth of business, but is it the right thing to do? Mm. Tough call. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Can, I see what you mean there as well. Can you foresee any radical changes to cart bait in the future, either from development standpoint or regulation standpoint, anything like that? No, I, th- I think from a regulatory point, um, there is small changes coming in there. But until the government bodies uh, stop your cost-cutting and saying, right, well, we've got 2,000 bodies in DEFRA, uh, but because of um, cutbacks and because of the pandemic, we're now cutting you to 500 jobs. That means there's 1,500 people less to police yeah. enforce these regulations. So looking at it as a whole until the government bodies decide right yeah we're going to clamp down on this yes we're going to clamp down on that it's unenforceable mm. that's my personal belief you know, it makes sense it makes sense in terms of the development side of it how do you i imagine it depends on the product but generally what is the start of a new product for you is it something is that you just keep hearing about people keep asking you for it is it something you discover is it a sample you get sent generally speaking how do your uh your products start their life i think it's what you get you know you get uh, before when we first started off it was you was begging companies for samples of their products but now the tables turn because we've become a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and people are starting to take notice of you, and then all of a sudden, oh, do you want a sample of this? Do you want a sample of that? Do you want a sample of this? Hang on a minute, mate. Three, four years ago, you didn't want to send us any samples. You was like, who the hell are Bath? But, obviously, I'm very open to any ideas that come along, you know, new products, new ingredients... I can roughly say, yes, if a company wants to send me this particular product, you know, they're manufacturing this, yeah, we'll take a look at it. You've got a product sat on the desk, which um, has been rarely tested. I did clock that when I came in, yeah. Um, That's, um, you know, a hydro yeast from the byproduct of ethanol production. So we thought, right, we'll take a look at this. The specs, it's not amazing, but it's not too bad. Shall we take a look at this? There's good availability of it. Shall we see what, um, you know, if this one's a a work? So what we do is, like anything else, we have to go through a series of... a series of protocols that they have to pass a certain test, whether that be the tank test, you know, and then from the tank test... Do we give it out to certain consultants? Mm-hmm. We might borrow DNA's consultants. Yeah, try a bottle of this, try a bottle of that. We might send it out to some of our good customers. Yeah, here's a bottle of this, here's a bottle of that. So then you build up feedback, you know, over a period, a month or two months, and you generally find um, positive feedback. So then you make it on a wider scale, you know. Anybody want samples? You might put samples in there with a customer's order as Mm. an example you send samples out to the trade manufacturers so then you build it up and build it up and you get that feedback from it you know is it as good as what's already out there because if it's not i won't be bringing it out Mm. it's as simple as that so you might spend two years on a product 
I don't quite make the grade. So you think, wow, that's cost me about £20,000 in various stuff. I mean, it still hasn't made the grade. But at the end of the day, if we didn't go through these and if we didn't do the trials and all the trivials that come with it, how do we know? Mm -hmm. This is what I love, the development side of things. Um, I'm, I brought a lot of things to the fore that um, working as a consultant for DNA for the last seven years, helping develop the baits, I brought a lot of things that my knowledge of ingredients and how they work, why they work, um, has helped me. So if a, if a rep does come to me and say, right, can you try, do you want to try some of this? It's the best thing since sliced bread. Send me a spec sheet, send me the MSDS, send me the breakdown of it. And then they'll go, all right, okay, yeah, I'll send you this. And I can know, virtually know straight away whether it's going to be a gore or not. How often do you hear that? This is the next big thing, you need to get it on this. Um, I think a lot of it's, it's how a company marketed media side of things um you know there has been some good things um to come out in the last few years not necessarily released by bath mm. you know it might be released by another company who've got um the noses in there first you know so it's it's how you market it how you media um aspect side of it social media desi looks after that side of things for us um he'll obviously use his expert knowledge because if it comes to marketing media from my side I wouldn't have a clue mm. you know I can't, I can't even open an Excel file <laughs> so I can't you know that's just the way yeah. I am yeah um, okay I mean in them respects so yeah. it's, it's it's how you go about marketing how you build up mainline you should be very good at it mm. you know take them three four years to release a bit by by the end of that fourth yeah. year, they've got everybody on tenterhooks. Yeah, yeah. When's it coming out? Uh -huh. When's it coming out? It's how clever mm. um, they're able to manipulate the mindset. This this product here, can I say what it is? What's written on the bottle? That one. No. Okay, there no, we go. No. <laughs> we, we've called it, for now, we've called it hydro yeast. Basically, it's, um, it's, a, it's a mixture of... Um, yeah, yeast and wheat protein fractions from the um, byproduct alcohol industry. Gotcha. So we've been sent it because we work with some of the big companies. Um, he dropped probably five one litres off. I've asked him for a, a thousand litres of it, an IBC. Unfortunately, they sell it in twenty nine tank tanker loads. Oh shoot! So I don't I don't really want to mess it's about twenty nine. <clears throat> Um, I shall, um, if he if he can supply an IBC of it, I'll take it to the next stage. Mm. Um, Des has already caught fish on it. Hey, how'd you rate it, Des? Des isn't mic'd up, but... It worked. It worked. <laughs> there's a lot more testing. Yeah, it's of course. It's a brand new product, there's a lot more testing, but I'm thinking, as, as with a lot of liquid yeast products, um, they tend to come into four in the winter months, colder months. Yeah, yeah. So, um, obviously now, from now onwards, a lot of people are going to have it in their minds about, you know, using it for the winter bit. If I do get the IBC in before winter, I shall certainly give um, samples out to the various bait manufacturers and people who want um, samples to have a look at it. Yeah. Um, and just get the feedback from there. Yeah. And we'll see how it is in a year's time. Yeah. 
um, see what um, people's thoughts are. Is it working? Does it work? Just take it from there. Fascinating. You, there's got to be a huge element of passion for this, rather than just selling things you know that work and never really move forward. You know, it seems like you're you're constantly trying to to find new products and things and advancements. Yeah, I don't think there's enough uh, years left in your lifetime, though. Yeah, never ending. Um, looking at that, my, I love product development. Um, I love new things. Um, a product like DMPT um, that I, people are using some considerable success now. I first came across nearly 18 years ago. Mm. Um, I've played about, messed about with enzymes over the last 10, 15 years. I've messed about with ketones, flavorings and such. There isn't enough hours in the day to cram it all in. Ketones are an interesting one, not not for attraction, but but energy. As far as I'm aware, what were your findings with ketones? Very very hit and miss. Yeah, um, we used um, it was more to do with the bodybuilding yeah. supplement boom. Um, we looked at raspberry ketones, and uh, I looked a little bit more in the energy. Yeah, or the mitochondria side of things yeah. from that. Yeah, and so I was like, "Well, this can I pursue something down this avenue?" Because obviously, if you don't go down that avenue, you'll never know. And I found the levels to use were very, very hit and miss. It's the same with a simple product like um, caffeine and um, what's the creatine. I was using creatine twenty years ago, messing about with it in hot baits. Mm. But for every time you're messing about with it and, you know, you're wasting another three nights fishing. Yeah, oh yeah. But if we don't do that, how do we know whether this particular ingredient works or not? So it's building up that knowledge over years and years. And now I tend to, obviously, with I'm, be, I'm more business orientated these days. So I've got to say, right, I'll look at something on paper, know it will work, and then take it to the next level of the testing. Do you ever come across anything that that would work well and would be really, really valid and and worthy ingredient or product that just isn't economically viable? So you chuck it out. Yeah, probably GLM. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think DMPT. When I first um, when I first come across DMPT um, or dimethyl beta propyothetin as its name is, when I first come across that, I was scratching my nuts thinking, is this really as good as what mm. everybody's making out or the, what the manufacturers are claiming? Fine uh, line for error, right? Very, very fine line. And it, the penny didn't drop until I put, um, I put about a quarter of a teaspoon into a pint glass of water years ago. And I did a pH test on it and it just blew mm. me away. The pH dropped below two. Mm. So I had a tiny quarter of a teaspoon of this DMPT. But then it got me thinking, is my application of this all wrong? You know, am I putting it in a bait whereby I'm using a gram, a gram and a half <coughs> in a kilo of base mix? Am I using this wrong? And now my thoughts are slowly changed to whereby I think it's much more effective even though it should only be used in a hook bait low yeah. scenario it's far more effective in a liquid liquid 
applicated to abate after. Yeah. So soaking, yeah. Yeah. Personally, um, you know, dissolve it in a little bit of warm water, mix it with a little bit of hydro, and then coat your boilies or your hook baits hook or baits. whatever. Is, you're worth saying that again. You, you, we're not allowed to put that in feed baits. You're so, not allowed yeah. to. But at the end of the day, I'm not here to police what no, 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 no. Uh, allowed and not allowed to do because that's entirely up to them at the end of the day. Because we know there is people using certain substances and certain things out there yeah. that are well beyond the, um, let's just say, borderline limits of what's allowed to be used and what's not allowed to be used. Yeah, yeah. I. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that some more? Not, not really. Not no. really. <laughs> okay. So it's switching gears a little bit. Uh, flavors. You. I don't think you have a, a. Well, you don't have a huge range of flavors, but some of your flavors are, are held in very high regard. Is this an area that you've spent a lot of time looking into, or or not so much as the say hydros or different powders and meals i think it's one one i probably neglected um because i put so much um thought and concentration into the hydrolysates and various other ingredients that you're looking at you've got to be sensible and say right how much time can i realistically yeah. devote to this subject now i'm very mindful of um certain flavors it's a chemical makeup that'll mm. do the damage mm -hmm. um, but cosmetically there's nothing better than actually smelling a, a flavor and thinking that has got to be a winner <laughs> i think 99 percent of us do it don't we oh yeah oh yeah when yeah. we come up to a particular i mean my personal favorite is probably chop fruit you yeah know, that bath cell i mean i'm not saying every, every you're saying that to sell a few more no because we do sell enough of it yeah but i just love that that orangey, that berry aroma from it, and it just it virtually overpowers everything. And what's one man's pain with flavours is another man's gain. Mm. You talk to so many people within the industry and on the bank, you know, you might get a guy using a strawberry flavour, um, and as John Baker quite rightly pointed out, out of all the 300 different yeah, aromas within a strawberry, there's only one that's effective. Mm-hmm. Well, it was like, well, he knows far more than what I do. But at the end of the day, what I've tried to do with flavours are we did a bit of field testing back in the late 80s um, for, obviously, the great Rod Hutchinson. And that guy was an absolute legend yeah. when it comes to flavours. I've held him in such high regard. How he could come out with so many effective flavourings in back in his period in time was just phenomenal you know he was just on another level altogether when it comes to actual flavorings and why and he, and he understood why they worked he must have had a massively deep understanding of it all because it, there's no way he would have had enough time to test if you think how many flavors he brought out and how much test in each one of those, you know, you have to short track that process surely by knowledge of what is going to work. Uh, it's yeah, I think obviously with the with the EU legislation um, and the Food Standard Agency classing fishing bait as an animal feed. Um, now all these flavour houses have had to reformulate mm. the flavours um, so that the EU additive approved. 
Uh, it's a bit like the um, Kingfisher Red Robin Red scenario, whereby now they've swapped over to a beetroot powder instead yeah. of a synthetic dye, uh, which is obviously a more natural-based um, beetroot powder that goes into the makeup of um, the Kingfisher Red and the Robin Red. So now the FSA's decided, right, um, fishing baits are food uh, clusters and animal feed because there's a lot of people eat fish on the on the dinner plate, which to me I don't. It's, I think it's a load of tosh. It's a recreational sport at the end of the day. As long as you're on a lake or a river, which is recreational fishing, um, I think there should be a, a dividing line there between a feeding an animal and b recreational fishing. Yeah, we can't go poisoning the waterway systems and stuff like that with various things, but there should there should be a line classified from the authorities. Look, this is recreational fishing. It's not as if we're we're farming or rearing farm fish for the table. Yeah, it's totally different. So with all the all the regulations around the flavour houses having to reformulate all their recipes of all their flavours they produce. Um, over the last 18, 24 months, and people come back to you and say, oh, this flavour's changed. Different, mm. This flavour's totally different, and this flavour's a bit thinner, this flavour's whatever. Yeah, it is, mate. Mm. It is. I'm not going to lie to you. Because of the EU regulations, that they cannot use this chemical because it's not an EU feed-approved additive. We can't, you cannot use that anymore in a flavouring. And I think that's where that's hurt the... Um, the people who rely on flavours a lot. Um, yeah, oleo resins are obviously a different thing, and they they act differently within the bait. But that's something that that won't change, right? That, they're pretty consistent. I wouldn't have thought so. Not mm. only they're a natural um, derivative um, from essential oils, etc. Yeah. Um, so you should be fine there. Yeah. Um, obviously, work very similar to essential oils as a flavour enhancer type perspective and one i really rate highly um but flavorings again like you said bath hasn't got a massive amount of flavorings yeah we could possibly could have come out with 200 flavorings but in reality out of them 200 flavorings we brought out how many would effectively yeah, work exactly yeah you know and um obviously hats off to john baker he's got a, a brilliant range of flavorings um the old Nutribates flavourings were held in high regard. Um, Richest flavourings back in the day, again in high regard. And there is probably Solas, Coyan Octopus Rara, again held in high regard. So effectively, realistically, how many is there out of three, four, five hundred flavourings? How many really effectively do work? What is it? Dozen? Twenty? Yeah. Yeah, it's not many. Personally? Not many at all, no. So I think it's it's it's, it's one of them, it's a personal choice, mm. you know. Um, and I think because of the, the nature of the chemical makeup of flavourings, um, you can easily overdo it. No, definitely, yeah. And people are people, aren't they? They want to smell it. They so do, they, they, they do. Like it's, like, it's like when you open the, the, the bottle top on a flavouring. Yeah. They have to smell it. Yeah. But what smells um, to me and you as exactly. an apricot, when does a carp ever come across a strawberry, a banana, a pineapple under the water? Yeah. It never does, unless it's fell from a plant, a tree or whatever. 
Yeah, which is, yeah. So from me, I think 90% of it is cosmetic. Mm. It's what the angler smells and he thinks, I'm having some of that regardless. And I think that's what it is. You know, the nuts and bolts of it all are. The the angler wants to smell that within his bait. Yeah. It's very much a confidence thing for him. And if it is a confidence thing and it's working for you, fair play. Mm. That's the honest truth about yeah. it. Oh, yeah, and it gets overdone because, obviously, they want to smell that flavour in the finished bait, don't they, which is often too yeah, much. Yeah, you might have a, a strong-smelling fish meal uh, ingredient within your bait, and you're putting this nice-smelling strawberry, pineapple, whatever, in there, and using it at the recommended dosage. Like, tooty fruity is a massively powerful flavour. Um, I'm always banging the drum on when customers ring up don't use any more than a mill and a half per six eggs. Mm. And like, you hear the phone go silent for a couple <laughs> of seconds and you're thinking, well, is, is, is he talking out of his ass here? But um, I've used that flavour for years and years and years. And in this case, more is not always better. Mm. And then you've got guys like Frank Warwick who are freaking yeah, dosing the, it up and yeah, catching loads. And it just, yeah. But the thing is, he's using it in a single hook bait scenario, mm, yes, which is yeah. massively different. I mean, yeah. if you're putting, as an example, yeah, this is how I look at the analogy of it. If you're putting, right, say you're putting 20 mil of, say, mega spice, just as an example, in a kilo of bait, yeah? And you're thinking, I know it's over the odds, but I'm off for it. And then you go fire out five kilo of bait. Mm. That's 100 mil of flavouring. Yeah you've actually put into that lake. Can you really see it being that effective? <laughs> because you'll end up repelling. Yeah. Because it'll just hardwire the olfactory bulb um, and it, they just will not be able to look at anything. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, going on with home rollers, are there any common mistakes that you see them making time and time again? If you were to speak to the home rollers now, is there anything you would say? I think the biggest mistake they'll make is overcomplicating. Um, they'll send me a recipe via email or they'll talk to you on the phone. Can you give us a bit of quick advice? I've got this bait together. What do you, what's your thoughts on it? I'll turn around and say that's the longest recipe I've ever seen in my life. There's 22 different ingredients there. So I try and split it down because a more nutritional side of things. I think, right, and yeah, I need some protein in that bit. I need some carbohydrate. I need some lipid. I need some vitamin minerals. So I've split it down into them five different aspects. Right, and what, what is this particular ingredient gonna do for me? Whey protein concentrate, as an example, the 80% stuff. What's that gonna do in a bit? Yeah, we know it's gonna fulfill quite a bit of the protein needs of a fish and has it got any functional ingredients does it act as a binder is it soluble etc etc so you've got to look at them and then i say to people just keep things nice and simple yeah they've got three different flavorings in there if you see what i mean they've got three different hydros in there mm -hmm. and i'm thinking why do you want that one in there well because so and so said it was good no, what, what is your purpose of putting that in there? Because at the end of the day, it's only going to cost you out of your own wallet. So are you spending X amount at Baffo or X amount at 
spotted fin or X amount of CC moles, but at the end of the day, what's the reality of it? Because the more you complicate it, the more your head's going to be up with your ass. And let's be honest, it's not hard to overcomplicate things in bait, is it? No. So I just say make things as simple as possible. Yeah, sort your protein level out. If, in, and look at look at your own fishing aspect. Um, are you going to be concentrating on one water for the next two or three years? Or are you going to be fishing lots of different venues? You've got to look at it like that and say, right, if I'm fishing one water for the next two or three years... I want a good quality bait that's going to not blow over that two or three years. But if I'm fishing a variety of waters, just going with my mates for a social here, there and everywhere, yeah, you can maybe get away with it at the other end of the spectrum. Interesting, and that's coming from someone who sells bait. So. Yeah, I'm totally honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereby, if, I don't see the need to... If, if, a, if a particular hydro works at 50 mil... And Joe Bloggs is down the road saying, well, mine's working at 150 mil per six eggs. And I'm saying, well, you don't need that. I'll save you two-thirds of your money mm. by just putting 50 mil in. It's not needed, pal. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I, t I tell it. If I think he needs more in there, I'll be honest and say, right, come on, line Bath's pocket a bit and stick a little bit more in there. But no, it's, it's one of them. You've got to be honest. And I think the more honest you are about it, um, the more people respect you and yeah. think, right, yeah, that's, that's sound advice. Moving on to a few questions that we got sent to us um, to ask you. Stephen, and I've forgotten his name. Robinson? The guy that does uh, homemade bait buffs. Yeah. Sorry, Stephen. Um, forgotten your name here. Yeah, he's Anyway. Stephen. Only kidding, Stephen. <laughs> um, he asked, have you got any plans to release any of the kind of old school milks, alpha lactalbulamin, etc.? Right, good question. I've looked at Alpha Lact album and um, probably when we first started buying in ingredients for yeah. Bath, because I do rate Alpha Lact album. Yeah. Um, but basically, Alpha Lact album is a, a particular type of whey protein. So there's very some very very poor quality Alpha Lact albums out there. Now I've got to look at it from a business sense. Yeah. I got in touch with Arla Foods, they're a big Danish company um, who produce a lot of um, milk proteins. I've obviously got a UK distribution centre. Um, <clears throat> now Arla, Arla Foods gave me two types of alpha lactalbumin. They gave me one that was 10% lactalbumin and they gave me one that was 20% lactalbumin. Now at the time to buy 100% pure Lactalbumin, you would probably have to go to somewhere like a company like Sigma Holdrich, mm -hmm. um, and you'd probably be looking at around about £150 a kilo. Jesus. Now, for me to buy the, at the time, for me to buy the 20% alpha lactalbumin was around about, this is before I got it shipped in from Denmark, it was around about €18 Euros a kilo. Now, Jesus Christ. And even the 10% stuff was about 14 euros a kilo. And this is probably four or five years ago. Yeah. So by the time I'd shipped it across into the UK, realistically, who was going to pay Bath 25, 26, 27, 28 pounds a kilo on it? I can't see there's been many uptakers no. on this. I'd love to bring, I do, you know, Alpha Lactarbon's got a fantastic amino. Um, 
profile to it and it's a very good ingredient within the manufacturer cart baits but um, there's a lot of poor stuff out there if you see anybody selling lactalbumin ask them what percent lactalbumin alpha lactalbumin is in that produce because you'd be looking at two three percent and the rest is whey protein concentrate interesting moving on um insect meal within baits is this something that you think we're going to be seeing more of in the future i think so yeah insect meals very very early days um you know it's only coming to the fore over the last probably five six years it's been touted about you know as a re sustainable replacement we're still at the early days whereby um there's not enough being made and when we say insect meal, I mean, there's a lot of different insects, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Is I mean, I'm, I'm predominantly talking sort of like black soldier fly, um, the mealworms and maybe the cricket meals and stuff. Um, <coughs> producers cannot produce enough of it at the minute. Um, whereas your fish meal producers can produce enough fish meal. Mm. So um, until there's a, an actual situation whereby we're producing all the various manufacturers of, of insects and insect protein are producing enough and supply becomes saturated and that, that'll drive the price down because the more people producing it um, the more that's going to low, lower the price so at the minute it's quite at the high end of things but I think gradually it will get a foothold and I think it's not a bad thing is it um, you look at the sustainability side of things, they're already doing trials on humans to eat it for the, you know. Oh, yeah, you could get insect bars and all yeah, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, I think it's Yorra. Um, they're one of the pet food companies, first pet food companies to to pop it into the manufacture, the dog and cat food. So I think it will come. Um, and end of the day, what's more natural to a fish? Apart from, yeah, I don't think you're ever going to replicate the live insect because you look at the way fish react mm -hmm. to live naturals as opposed to dead ones, yeah. I get people's thoughts and whatnot on that, but that unfortunately, until we can mimic that live um, insect, um, you know, we've still got some searching to do. Next question is from Cheeky Dinks. It's a good question, this one. What is an undersold product from British Aquafeeds that you hold in a high regard? Undersold, probably the beta stim. Beta stim. Yeah, you mentioned this in the beginning. Yeah. I don't know. Sorry, I don't know what that is. What Basically, is that? Basically, um, it's, it's, it's a natural betaine product. We've all heard of betaine HCL, which is a chemically synthetic product. We've all heard of betaine hindrous, which is a chemically derived product. This is a natural liquid betaine from um, the sugar beet production. Um, anybody can do the tank tests on this. It's not that hard to do. And it's not the most expensive product in the world. Um, but by God, is it good. But I know certain companies could say you can't overdo it, but you can and my, my effective, or my personal belief on this is that 15 mil per kilo is, 
is all that is needed. You, you can maybe get away with a little bit higher winter because obviously the fish are cold-blooded, uh, the reaction times are slower and the sensory ability slows down. So you could probably get away with 20 mil. But that's all you need. And watch the fish's reaction to it. Watch, do the tank tests on it. Um, so beta stim, it's not the dearest product in the world, but I just don't think it's caught on with manufacturers and Joe Public and your home bait rollers alike. But it's one of the serious liquids I rate very highly indeed. What is the method of attraction there? What's it working through? Quaternary ammonium bases, or quats as we like to call them, <laughs> without getting too deep oh, into people's okay. heads. Um, they're basically, um, because the beta stim is, is probably the opposite end of the scale to most liquids, um, a lot of them are, are quite acidic, um, especially hydros um, and stuff, whereas beta stim's quite alkaline, because obviously the quaternary ammonium compounds within there, and that's what does the damage. But it, it, it also acts, beta is well known to aid digestion, Yeah. Uh, within lots of animals, not just fish, uh, as an osmoregulator, etc. So there is, on top of it being attractive to fish, um, it's also good for the fish, or good for the animal. And you said this type of betaine isn't HCl or anhydrous? It's not HCl, it's not anhydrous, it's a totally natural liquid betaine. Does, so does it still possess the digestive properties? Yes. It does? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It still possesses everything, um, it's actually... I believe it's made in Russia, of all okay. places. Okay. Um, so it's obviously imported in big amounts. And is this working off of gustation or olfication? It'll be through um, a combination of both. You, you'll have more of a, um, um, an olfactory stimulation there okay. because it does contain a slight amount of um, amino acids in there. Mm-hmm. Um, rather, rather than opposed to taste, but um, let me get back onto the on that one because there is something in there that I don't want to okay. disclose. It's the same. I know a golden oldie to me is molasses. I mean, how cheap is molasses? I and mean, I think it's a superb additive. I really do. Given the vitamin and mineral profile of it, and how nutrient dense it is, mm -hmm. and and fish. I genuinely like it. Yeah. You know. All right, sometimes don't attract the right sort of species that probably the carp anglers and stuff are after. But I think I just think um value for money. Molasses is up there with it all. I think that's just part of how attractive it is. Of course it's going to attract the bream as well, you know. It, yeah, I think I think there is that downside to it, but I just think it's one of those forgotten yeah. ones. Yeah. You know, where where Probably 20, 30 years ago, a lot of matchmen would include molasses within the ma manufacture of the, or the makeup of the ground bait and stuff. It just seems to have gone out of fashion. Yeah. You know, people have relied a lot on the hydros and more protein based stuff. But you look at hydro wheat, um, hydro wheat's dominated the market for a few years now. Um, what is it, 6% protein? So it's not all down no. to the, like we've explained, don't get too hung up on the hydrolysis side of mm -hmm. things. Yeah, they're bloody good, but um, always keep an open mind. You yeah. know, look at other, the hydro weights, amylase activity, yeah. which is very interesting in breaking down carbohydrates within a bit. Now, on that note, 
I've had, had this chat with Dean Towie, who who knows a lot more about bait than I do. But amylase, is this purely working off of just splitting down, say, polysaccharides, um, disaccharides? Is that the only kind of use it has? Or would you say that there is some chemical reaction byproduct of those saccharides being broken down that is attractive in its own right to cause cut? You're right in that latter part of what you said. Um, the way... Um, obviously, polysaccharides or long-chain sugar molecules are broken down into what we call di or monosaccharides, into what we call simple sugars such as glucose, fructose. Um, you know, there is a, there is a byproduct there. I'm not fully hundred um, percent, but I believe it's to do with again acids. On the acid side of yeah. things, I'm not fully because it's one I've I've only just sort of like come across in the last year when I was when we'd done the hydrocon. Um, I had to study obviously um, um, various enzymes from our suppliers, what enzymes they supply to break down the actual corn kernel. Mm-hmm. So I looked at it, and um, when you look at the type of acid it gives off during that hydrolysis stage uh, one of them is ferulic acid which is very beneficial to fish which probably I would dare say maybe 78% of bait makers have never heard of before Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so there's another one so they're all searching on the keyboards now for ferulic acid but um, obviously it's it's only one I've just come to light about and learned a little bit of knowledge about over the last 12 months and it's the complex carbohydrates is it's probably more head banging than the than the, the actual proteins protein. themselves. Yeah. Just a sheer abundance and you've got disulfide bridges and everything else that are really hard to split down from like the chitin, the polysaccharides and the disulfide bridges within the chitin to break down. Um you know, these are simple not simple, but the complex carbs. So the study of the um, Cornwall was certainly an eye-opener to me and how we transform these um, complex saccharides, you know, into mono and disaccharides, you know, into simple sugars. And it was like, wow, that's so, like, give me a bit of an eye-opener, that. Yeah, yeah, because it's generally the monosaccharides that we view as being attractive to carp, isn't it? But as you said, I think there must be something else to the the carbate, the splitting action of it. Definitely, definitely 100%. Mm. Obviously, when I look at certain acids given off during that process, and obviously, I'll give you that one for ulic acid, we um, we use... uh, a four-way enzyme treatment of the hydrocorn, believe it or not, even though it's it's quite a cheap product to buy, mm. um, the actual shell is the hardest bit to break of the, down of, of the corn kernel to break down. I think if we was to use a particular enzyme, it would take around about ninety-six hours. I mean, look at it this way: it comes out in your poop, doesn't it? Exactly. And we're pretty good at <laughs> digesting yeah, most there things. You go. So uh, yeah. every every time you know we've all seen the old sweet corn shell in the pool yeah, aren't we yeah. um, but that's just how hard that the actual kernel or the shell bit of the sweet corn is to is to break down We've even had, though it's soft to the touch crazy isn't uh, it? yeah yeah we've had a lot of questions about that hydro corn and i've never used it what i mean can you expand on that is it is it been well received by the market 
I think the matchmen enjoy it. Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've tried sort of like over the last couple of years to diversify a bit um, with the various hydros because um, yeah, there's a lot of carp anglers and a lot of carp bait manufacturers, but you've got to look at and think right. Where can I gain business within the angling side of things? Can I? Is the match scene's massive, mm. you know? And I think it's river angling has gained a massive popularity. You look on the banks of the Trent over the last four to five years, it's virtually doubled overnight. You know the popularity in barbell fishing. So, yeah. as a business, you've got to understand where the trends are going and say to yourself, right, can we target? Um, with our products, those that make barbell baits, those that, you know, can we target the barbell anglers with the hydros and stuff, which we know are just as effective for barbell as what they are for carp. So we looked at it, and the hydro corn, I think people have thought, it's sweet corn. Yeah, it's nothing, is it? But you look at the clouding effect mm. that actual hydro corn gives off. It's absolutely amazing. It just turns everything like a milky yellow. There's one reason why I like groats. They have a similar yeah, kind of absolutely. effect, and I imagine it would. I imagine a lot of people would put those two things together. But the matchmen certainly um, the amount of 500 mil and one litre bottles we sell, in comparison, we say selling 20 litres to the bait manufacturers or 100 litres to this guy. Yeah. The matchmen have obviously cottoned onto it. Yeah. Interesting. Crayfish hydrolysate, is that something you've ever looked at? Not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think crayfish meal in its in its in its own right is is, is a quite uh, when in obviously Nashi first brought the um key cray yeah. to the fore. Um what it developed, um Gary Bears and the other gentleman at at Nash, I'm not sure if mine's gone blank who um worked alongside developing, was it Keith Sykes? Keith yeah. Sykes did a lot from here. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure if he helped along with Gary Bears develop the key the key he, he did. I'm not sure. I you know, I'm just trying to think, recall back in memory. But um yeah, um I think again, around about forty percent protein. Um the only downside to it was when um the company that manufactured the crayfish meal um made it they didn't mill the shell down enough in it. So obviously you had this like pinky pinky red shell outer that was quite coarse. Like mm. a bit like oyster shell grit, if yeah. you like, but obviously pinky ready in colour. And a few people mourn about scratching the tables and stuff like that. But the actual meal itself, I do rate. Mm. But for say every twenty kilo sack of the um crayfish meal you're getting i would have to sieve off half of it yeah so i've got then got to look at you got to look at costings as a business yeah i can get crayfish meal in it what, what are you going to pay for it eight nine quid a kilo to buy in yeah and, and then, then realistically what's that going to make in literage am i going to have a market for it so it's one of them yeah i think for the for the home novice for him to make a crayfish hydro, yeah, go for it. Mm. But I think from a, a commercial, a business scale, I have to be honest and hold my hand up and say, I don't think it's commercially viable. Yeah. It's interesting. Carp are definitely eating crayfish. So oh, absolutely, the, there's yeah. that it's, appeal there. You know, anything like that and anything insect derived and 
vertebrae derived and anything like that, yeah, you've got to look at the natural food sources. Yeah. Callum, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thoroughly enjoyed looking around. Yeah, it's I was been a, a pleasure. To be fair, um, Sam, I was a bit nervous because I've never done a yeah, it's new a podcast. I've never done any video work as such, so it's all been a bit new to me. Yeah. But hopefully the uh, the guys like it, and if it's if it's well received, I'll come back and do another one. Love to have you on. Absolutely. Thanks ever so much. And thank you. And that concluded the interview with Callum. After we finished recording, Callum said that he would really like to come on for a part two, but he would like to get the listeners' feedback. So please either message us or message Callum. Probably easier to message us. Let us know what you would like Callum to cover next time. Obviously, he has got a very in-depth knowledge of all manner of different things revolving around creating a bait that is attractive to carp. Let us know. Do you want the real in-depth stuff or do you want a little bit more kind of, okay, how do I make a bait really attractive to carp? A simple step-by-step type thing or anything else. Just let us know what it is you want us to cover. Callum's really, really keen to hear what it is people want to learn about and he's keen to share his knowledge with you, which I think is absolutely fantastic. So message us, let us know what you want us to cover, and we'll be sure to get Callum back on the podcast for another episode. That's it for this one. Thanks ever so much for listening. Mm-hmm.